0: and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language. Then you're considering Catholicism. Well, welcome back. This is Greg, and once again, I'm flying solo out here at the secret compound. I'm going to answer some listener questions today, and so I thought I'd Sit out here by the fire pit on a you know, beautiful fall day. The colors are all changing, and take on some of these listener questions. Some of them I've answered in email, but what I'm going to start doing on a semi-regular basis is when you email your questions in or message your questions into me, one way or the other. I'm going to compile them, and then I'll do my best either by myself sitting here or bring in somebody else, and we're going to answer them. So. This is the first listener questions episode. Now, actually, all these questions today come from one particular listener, and his name is Chase, and he wrote me a really great email telling his story. And he says that that the podcast has been helpful for him. He's been doing his own research, listening to multiple podcasts, and he said that these podcasts and research that he's done have got him from, say... On a scale of zero, never joining the Catholic Church to about a six out of ten of hmm, I just might. And so anyway, he gave a list of questions, things that are still maybe, I don't know if they're deal breakers in his mind, but real hesitations that he has or speed bumps he needs to get over. We could probably do a whole episode on each of them, but we'll, I'll do my best here to tackle them. And if you have questions that you'd like answered, email me, consideringcatholicism at gmail.com. And uh, I'll do a future episode where I answer your questions. So, here we go. These are uh, Chase's questions. uh, And the first one is this. He asks about the deuterocanonical books. Now, if you remember uh, a while back, we did an episode on where the Bible came from and the Old Testament. And we talked about the difference. I think the episode was titled, The Difference Between Catholic and Protestant Bibles. And we talked about the fact that Catholic Bibles have an extra seven books in them. And as soon as I say that, I'm already sort of betraying the Protestant thing. What do you mean Catholic Bibles have an extra seven books? That's what Protestants say. The better way to put it is that Protestant books have taken seven books out of the historic Bible, not that the Catholics have added. And that you can go back and listen to that episode because we sort of robustly get into it. These seven books that were always part of the Old Testament from the time of the Apostles right up until the Reformation with Martin Luther, John Calvin, these seven books came to be known as the Deuterocanonical books, the second canon, because they were the books that the Reformers decided to subtract, not the ones that the Catholics decided to add. So anyway, go back and listen to that episode. I think it's called The Difference Between Catholic and Protestant uh, Bibles. But he asks about it, and he says, well, I've listened to that, Um, I've walked through all that. And he said, I keep hearing the history and how they came to be over and over again. And, And he says he can wrap his mind around the story of how those books were part of the Old Testament from ancient times and the Reformers subtracted them. But he says... Uh, he just gets really nervous. There's a sort of an emotional component. He says at the end of the book of Revelation, it warns about adding or taking away from the Bible. So how do we know we have the correct thing? And so anyway, here's the thing I want to say to Chase and anybody else who's sort of struggling with this, because I really understand it and it sort of parallels my own journey. So like Chase, uh, my background as a Protestant, Protestant pastor, whatever, was to assume that the Old Testament, the 66 books of the Bible, including the Old Testament as Protestants receive it, was the Bible. And I certainly remember... People saying to me, oh my gosh, the Catholics have these extra books. And I remember the thing about the book of Revelation, the last verses of the book of Revelation, about anyone who adds to this book or subtracts from this book. And I'm like, oh my gosh, the Catholics have added to it. And that's just Protestant propaganda. They weren't added, the Protestants subtracted. So that whole thing in the book of Revelation about don't add or subtract to the Bible, the the Protestants subtracted. But I get where he's coming from, because I went through this period, just like he did, where I read up on it, and I researched it, and understood the history, and and I intellectually accepted that the Catholic Old Testament, uh, or the complete Bible of 73 books, was the historic book Bible of the Church. It was the Bible of the Apostles. I intellectually grasped that. But something emotionally in me uh, was unsettled because there's nothing more important to a Protestant, a Bible-believing Protestant, than the integrity of Scripture. And that's been so heavily programmed into you that even though you intellectually say, okay, I get it. These were the books, the Septuagint, and the this, and that. Go back and listen to that episode. Even though I get the history and I get how it happened, there's still something about reading some books that weren't in my Protestant Bible that makes me queasy. So, I think Chase is asking, how do you get over that? And I guess the way that I got over it, and the way that I, I guess I'd, I'd suggest to Chase or anyone else, is to simply say well, let's look at my premises here. Why do I have this programming for the 66 books of the Protestant Bible? Where did that number come from? Well, it came from the fact that all the Protestant Bible publishers, every Bible that I bought from publishers like Zondervan and Nelson, and I used to work for one of those two. Now they've merged, but I used to work for one of those two. All the books I went into the the Christian bookstore and bought. All the Bibles in my house only had the 66 books. They didn't have these other books in them. So right away, there's an emotional programming here that these things are sort of alien. They are not in all the Bibles in my house. Having worked at one of those two publishers, I have a ton of books in my house, but I, I got a lot of Bibles. Every time we'd come out with a new cool Bible, cool cover, cool new font, style, whatever, new study Bible, I would get a copy and my, my house is full of Protestant Bibles, because some of them I still love, and they're full of notes that I took, and I don't want to get rid of them. And, and so there's something weird programmed into you that, that literally the, the physical books that you have don't have them. So that's one emotional connection, point of emotional programming. Another one is that all the pastors told you, don't trust the Protestant Bibles. And the reformers, Calvin, Luther, whatever, told you don't trust the Catholic Bibles. But again, you have to stand the premises on their head and say, well, why am I programmed this way? Because somebody told me. The pastor of my church told me. My Sunday school teacher told me. My youth group leader told me. The megachurch pastor on TV or the YouTube personality told me or the Bible publishers and all the Bibles in my house are that way. And again, I mean, that's, that's some strong emotional programming. But this is where I think you have to simply work through and allow your intellect and will to overcome your emotion on this. Because once you examine it, you realize, well, who was Martin Luther to subtract those? Who was John Calvin to subtract those? The publishers don't make theological decisions. They take what's submitted to them by the translators and this and that, and they publish them. It all comes down to an argument from authority. And in your life, all the authorities have told you, trust only the 66, don't trust the seven Deuterocanonical books. But the question is, which authority do you trust? And if you intellectually have gotten through the pat- fact that the, the Church of History, the Church of the Apostles, the, all of the ancient churches, the uh, Greek Orthodox churches, the Byzantine churches, the, the Catholic churches, all of the churches of history uh, up until the Reformation through three-quarters of the life of the church, And the Church of the Apostles and Augustine and the whole nine yards, those are the authorities. So you have to stack those authorities up against the fact that the people at Zondervan and Nelson who printed your Bible printed 66 books. And against your youth pastor and against your nice local pastor Dave and against the guy on YouTube. But at the end of the day, the canon of Scripture is an argument from authority. And I think that's the important thing is that the argument from authority has to rest on something. This really goes back to the issue between Protestantism and Catholicism in a big way. Who has the authority to determine the canon of Scripture? And Jesus gave that authority to the apostles in the Great Commission. Go into all nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And those apostles were given that apostolic authority to bind and loose, to teach the word of God, to build the church. And the church of the apostles and their successors accepted all of the Old Testament books. And once you sort of intellectually get to that point and you realize that, you have to stack up that authority versus the authority of Luther and Calvin and Pastor Dave and the people at Zondervan and Nelson who printed it. And so I think this is one of those cases where our emotions and our emotional programming can be very strong, but this is why God gave us an intellect and a will. And at the end of the day, this comes down to exactly an argument of authority and which authority you trust. And you're going to have to make a decision. In my case, I decided to trust the Church of History. I decided to trust the, the authority of the ancient canon. And, and even if it gave me the heebie-jeebies at first, I remember the first, some of the Deuteronomical books that I read when I was in the process of converting, I was really curious about the, 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 the Maccabees. So I read first and second Maccabees, an exciting book, and I was like, it felt like I was reading like, forbidden literature. And it sort of felt a little weird. I hadn't quite converted yet, but I was in the process of converting. I was like, oh, I'm reading this sort of forbidden book. Um, but I realized that was just emotional prejudice. That's what it is, prejudice. And and then my intellect and will, I had to be a grown-up and decide which authority I trusted. So my answer to Chase, anybody else who's struggling with that, is I totally get the emotional part of it, I get the prejudice part of it, but I also have to say that you have to make that decision, and then you have to get over it and move on. Okay, Chase's second question is, can salvation be lost? I'll read what he wrote. He said, I am under the assumption that salvation in the Catholic faith is through grace provided by faith. Correct. Correct. We are not saved by works. Okay? We've talked about this over and over and over again on the podcast. The Catholic Church does not teach salvation by works. It teaches salvation by grace, Jesus Christ's sacrifice, uh, which is accepted by faith. However... It makes a differentiation between salvation and sanctification. And we sanctify ourselves. We make ourselves more holy through good works. So in the words of the New Testament, we work out our salvation. We take the salvation that's gifted to us and we work it out and develop it and do something with it through sanctifying ourselves, through good works and through devotion. But here's what he says. He says, we're called to act in accordance with the Bible, so it isn't works per se. He said, but if you commit a mortal sin and do not repent or confess to a priest, or repent at all, even personally, have you fallen away from your salvation? Uh So, okay, let me tackle this a couple ways. It depends on what flavor of Protestant you were. I came out of the Calvinist branch, and the famous five points of Calvinism, tulip, T-U-L-I-P, the P stands for perseverance of the saints, which is Calvinism's or Reformed theology's notion that once saved, always saved. Because in Calvinist theology, salvation is utterly a gift of God. So God saves you by preordaining grace, by electing you. You sort of become aware of it. You don't even in a sense really accept it. I mean, existentially you might feel like you're accepting it, but really the only reason you're accepting salvation is because the Holy Spirit has prompted you to accept what God has already ordained for you and elected in you. And because salvation in Calvinism comes directly from God and God elects you, God can't fail. So if God says, you chase, I have elected you to salvation, there's no way you can lose that because for you to lose that, God would be, God's will would be thwarted. And God's will can't be thwarted. He's utterly sovereign. So when he says, can salvation be lost? As a Calvinist, you would say, well, no. If you're truly saved, you can never lose your salvation. And if it looks like you're losing your salvation because you're this wretched sinner and all this kind of stuff, and you keep turning away, then you probably never were really saved in the first place. This is the whole sort of weird thing of Calvinism that I finally had to leave behind. But his question is, now other Protestants, other flavors of Protestantism do not believe in the perseverance of the saints and believe in free will and that someone can choose salvation and also reject salvation. So which is it with Catholicism? Well, Catholicism says that our salvation is a gift, but we can abuse the gift and we can walk away from it. So if I give you a car, right? You need a car because you don't have one or whatever. And I decide, out of goodness and kindness and generosity or whatever, to gift you with a car. And I hand it to you and I hand you the registration and the keys. And I go, here's your car, right? Free gift. You didn't do anything to earn it at all. Now, the works part is you go, okay, I assume you're going to take care of it, right? You're going to maintain it, you're not going to let it fall apart. And you're not going to abandon it. You're not going to go leave it in a parking lot somewhere and walk away. And if you do turn away from that gift, that's your free will. I mean, the car is not anything that you earned. Taking care of the car, maintaining the car, that's sort of the good works that takes the gift that we've been given and makes the most of it. In fact, you really want to uh, follow that analogy. You'd say, I gift you with a car and you use the car to go get a job, start a business, delivering something, driving Uber or whatever. You sort of take the gift and make it productive and grow it. I mean, that's the parable of the talents. You do something with that gift. Those are sort of us taking the gift of God and salvation and developing it through good works, okay? But you can also choose to just walk away from the car, leave it in some parking lot and or something on the side of the road and just abandon it, neglect it. And in so doing, right, you in a sense are walking away from that gift. So in Catholicism, really, It isn't salvation by works. It's a gift of grace. But then you have the freedom of will to do with that gift as you would. Okay, so that brings me to Chase's then specific question about what if you commit a mortal sin and don't confess it? And and I think that that's a really good question, but it's a little bit different than the question of are we saved by faith? And I see how he conflates those two. Right, so the question of mortal versus venial sin and confession... And we've done some episodes about confession and reconciliation. This is the sacrament of reconciliation, sometimes called confession. But technically confession is what I do in the sacrament, right? It is me going in and confessing. The actual sacrament is the priest in the person of Christ reconciling me to God, absolving me of the sin. That's where the actual sacrament occurs, The confession is is the precursor to that. That's what I do. So the question then, I think is sort of second half of this question about mortal sin is, if I have been saved and then I commit mortal sins, but I don't confess them and receive reconciliation, have I lost my salvation? And the answer would be, well, sort of yes. So, Mortal sin is that which separates us from God. And we'll have to do another episode or something about the difference between mortal and venial sin. Mortal sin assumes it is a grave matter that separates us from God. That's done. You do it consciously. You make a choice to do it. You know it's the wrong thing. You know it's a grave matter. And you consciously t- choose to turn away from God. To abandon your obedience and faith in God. Okay? That's different than a venial sin where I sort of, out of habit, sort of f- f- stumble, okay? I'm driving home from work, and I am listening to something on, on the radio or something, and I drive over the speed limit, okay? Because I'm not paying attention. I didn't consciously say, hey, God, I'm going to just thwart your laws and thwart the laws of man to be, to spit in your eye. That's not what that is. That's just me being sort of lazy and stupid and driving over the speed limit. And you can imagine other ways in your life in which you're lazy and stupid. And those venial sins, we end up, according to Catholicism, those are things that we end up sort of working out in purgatory and purgation. The fact that we have, back to the car analogy again, that we sort of haven't maintained the car. We haven't maintained the gift of salvation and we have all these habitual sort of stumblings and habitual failings in our lives that need to be worked out. But mortal sin is something very different. And Catholicism, which is a sacramental religion, and and the confession to a priest is based on Christ saying to Peter, you're Peter upon the rock, and and I give you the power, the keys of the kingdom, that what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It is the power to forgive sin on earth. So the priest acts in persona Christi, means in the person of Christ, when you go into the confessional, the priest stands there as a proxy for Jesus himself, based on that passage that says through Peter, and then, of course, Peter gives that that office, that capacity down through the ages to the bishops and priests to exercise that power to bind and loose, So, in Catholicism, when you say, I have committed mortal sin, I deliberately and knowingly have turned away from God. I deliberately and knowingly abandoned the car that God gave me as a gift on the side of the road somewhere. And I am unreconciled to God in that. Because the way that we become reconciled is through the church and through the church's power to bind and loose. And again, I've talked about this over and over and over again on the podcast, that One of the primary differences between Catholicism and Protestantism is the notion that in Protestantism that we have this one-to-one direct personal relationship with Jesus. So if there's something wrong in our relationship with Jesus, we just sort of work it out on our own. Whereas in Catholicism, the church is the body of Christ and the, the power of the apostle, they exercise the power of Christ, the apostolic power. And so the way that we... The sacraments, whether that's obviously baptism and confirmation and the anointing of the sick and uh, marriage and confession reconciliation, all of these things are worked out through the sacramental offices of the church. So, the very long answer to Chase's question, two part question, but one, yes, we can lose our salvation, even though it's a free gift in Catholicism. And two, yes, if you are in mortal sin, you need to go to a priest and confess it. And and sometimes people do that on their deathbed. And if you are unconfessed and you die with unconfessed mortal sin, then all that we can do is 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 pray that God has mercy on your soul. But you die separated from God. Okay, here's another question that Chase asks, and I'll try to be shorter on this one. I don't know if I can be, because I did an entire episode just on this question, so maybe I'll refer to it. He says, what was the need for the Immaculate Conception? I keep hearing that for her not to pass original sin on to Jesus, she herself would have to be free of original sin. I don't understand the need for that, though, because since God is all-powerful, he could have made it so Jesus could be free of original sin, even if Mary wasn't. It's a really good question. It's one that I really struggled with. As I've said before, I think that the Marian doctrines for Protestants are sort of the last hurdle you have to clear. The typical path is a lot of Protestants become attracted to Catholicism for its moral theology, its rationality, it's this, that. Maybe they become attracted to the beauty of the liturgy, all these kinds of things. But the typical process is you get to this last sort of kind of hill to climb, and that's the Marian doctrines. And that was it for me. I remember... You know, years and years and years ago before, as I was sort of on the path, but I, I really struggled with this idea of the Immaculate Conception. And what I said was exactly what Chase is saying. It was sort of a Protestant understanding. I go, well, the Catholics came up with the Immaculate Conception as a way to sort of interrupt the transmission of original sin to Jesus, right? So they had this, I said, this is what I said at the time, not true but the thinking was that i had a lot of protestants have was, was like okay they're they're faced with this sort of problem they want jesus to be born fully sinless okay he doesn't inherit sin from joseph because he was conceived by the holy spirit and mary but didn't he inherit original sin from mary and so in my mind some catholic theologians in the middle ages got together in their a dimly lit abbey or something and uh, or, or university or something where they Counted how many angels could dance on the head of a pen, and they scratched their heads, and they said, "I got an idea. So what if that that transmission of original sin is interrupted by a Mary being born with without original sin? God does this immaculate conception, and then that way Jesus sort of doesn't inherit it from her side." And I remember at the time as a Protestant thing, well how stupid is that? Because if God could simply do that, if he could simply interrupt the transmission of original sin that way, then why have to go upstream to Mary? Why not just conceive Jesus in Mary's womb immaculately, right? I mean, if he could do it for Mary, why couldn't he do it for Jesus? So it seemed to me like this unnecessary sort of logical step that the Catholics had painted themselves into a corner. Well, as I've said about the Marian Doctrines and Protestants, is it's, it's the last hill you have to climb. You know, if you've ever been on a, a hike or a long bike ride or something, and you get to like this last big hill, maybe you're on a backpacking trip or something, or a big long bike trip or something, you get this last big pass before you get to your destination, and it's really hard to climb the last big hill... But once you get over it, man, it's all downhill and it's a fast race to the finish. And that's really what it was for me because once I grasped the Immaculate Conception, once I got it, man, I, my, my conversion to Catholicism just speeded along. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't 90 days after that that I was ready to, to, to become Catholic or enter the Catholic Church all the sort of pieces snapped into place for me. So let me try to explain this. And I, I explained this in an episode of the podcast. If you go back and search in the episodes to episode 35, episode 35, a Protestant asks about the Virgin Mary. This is when my friend Ed the Protestant, sitting out here at the secret compound, finally asked me about it and I explained it. And so you can go back and listen to that full explanation But let me just shorten it. Here's what happened for me. Chase, I hope this works for you. Let me put it this way. When I was in seminary, this Calvinist seminary, our big thing was understanding foreshadowing in the Old Testament of the New Testament, right? So that everything in the New Testament, you could go back and find foreshadowed in the Old, right? all these biblical archetypes, all of these signposts that point. And so we were trained, and it was a sort of hermeneutical method where you'd go through, because Jesus says on the road to Emmaus how every page, every word of the Old Testament points to me. I fulfill it all. So I remember going through and finding every detail of Jesus' life and going, okay, see, this is how this is foreshadowed in the Old, blah, 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 blah. But here's the one thing that never made sense. I was able to point out how everything in Jesus' life in the New Testament is foreshadowed in the Old, except one thing. I could never figure out what the Ark in the Old Testament foreshadowed in the New. I don't mean the Noah's Ark, I meant the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? So, right? Moses comes down from Mount Sinai with his commandments. God instructs them to build this tabernacle, this kind of movable temple, and to construct this this ark, this sort of wooden box covered in gold, um, adorned, sanctified, and in it was three things. The tablets of the Old Testament, so the word of God, a pot of the manna that sustained the Israelites in the wilderness, so the the bread of life and the staff of Aaron. So the, the power, the lordly power of, of Israel. And they were kept in the ark. I mean, you've probably seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, whatever, right? In this, in this wooden box. And the question is, what did that, what did that foreshadow? Where's that fulfillment of that in the new Testament? And when the lights went on for me personally, was when i started to read the church fathers and the church fathers say the ark of the uh, covenant in the old testament is a foreshadowing of mary the ark of the new covenant you see it's not just sort of god trying to solve this transmission problem like how can i sort of interrupt the transmission of original sin God was born into the Ark of the New Covenant. In the same way in the Old Testament that the that presence of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, descended upon the Ark of the Old Covenant at its consecration, so in the New Testament, in Luke, at the Annunciation, the Holy Spirit descends on Mary, the pure Ark of the New Covenant, and into her womb, as that ark is the word of life right the divine logos the word of god right in the beginning was the word the word was with god the word was god right and and the bread of life jesus i am the bread of life right? and the the might of israel because he's the king the successor of david and all of that is in her womb she is that ark that bears that so the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, comes down, descends upon her, just like on the Ark of the Old Covenant, and into her she carries that. And so the reason for the Immaculate Conception was not just technically how does God solve this this problem of tra- the transmission of sin. The reason for the Immaculate Conception is for her to be the Ark of the New Covenant. She needed to be sanctified. She needed to be a holy space. And I could unpack that. I've unpacked that in the other episodes. Go back and listen to episode thirty five. I talk about it for half an hour. But but when I realized that, it all made sense to me now. Now I got it. Now I got who Mary was. And then and I thought that I figured it out. Then, then I read in The Church Fathers, like shortly right after that, like within a week, then I read when I was doing my investigations, that Mary is the new Eve, the second Eve. Christ. Jesus is the new Adam. Mary is the new Eve. So, think of this. The first Eve does not have original sin, right? She's a young woman, however old she was, right? She's in the garden, she's a new woman, and she is immaculate. She does not have sin, and she's given a choice. And the choice is to obey God, follow God, put his will first by obeying him, not eating the fruit, or to put her will first and take the fruit. And the first Eve fails that test. So that brings sin into the world. Now for the second Adam to bring life into the world, the church fathers said, and this goes all the way back to the ancient church fathers, first generations, God creates a new Eve. Another young woman, who is able to make the choice or is is presented with the choice again to put God's will first or her will first. And in order for that choice to be meaningful, for the test to be meaningful, she needs to be sort of ontologically like the first Eve, uncorrupted. And so an uncorrupted young woman is presented with the choice to put God first or herself first and humanity's future the future of the cosmos rests in the balance and so in a sense the annunciation is the redoing of eden and what does eve say not my will but yours be done right essentially right so that's the fiat of mary she passed that test which then allows the holy spirit to descend make her the ark so Chase, I hope this is helpful to you. Go back and listen to episode 35. But I get it. I mean, that's exactly how I thought of it. It was that there was sort of this kind of clever, logical thing to interrupt the train. But really, it's much more profound than that, much more biblical than that. So Chase asks another question here following up that. And he says, I understand that Mary is to be venerated, not worshipped. But he says, where is that line crossed? Where does, in a sense, Marian devotion trip over and is sort of overdone. And Mary starts to get more than her due, And he makes the point that in the rosary, right, you pray the Hail Mary more than you pray anything else. And again, it's the last hill to climb. It's that last big pass in the mountains before you descend down to your destination. It's hard to get over it. And one of the things that's super creepy and weird when you're Protestant on this journey is... The depth of Marian devotion, and it does start to feel like all these warnings that you've had from Protestants that the that Catholics have made Mary sort of a fourth person of the Trinity or a sort of a demi-god. and Marian devotion looks super super weird from the outside when you're coming in, and I remember how creeped out I was by these things of to Jesus through Mary, right? This line that you'll hear when Catholicism. Because I go, what do you mean to Jesus through Mary? Uh, right? Why can't I just go to Jesus? And it does look like you're setting her up. So real quick on this one, first of all, I can point to some instances. I can look at some instances of some people who may abuse Mary devotion. Okay, let me just say that. Right? Okay. Like, but I can do that for anything. I can look at Protestants who uh, do snake handling or whatever. I mean, I can all day long to point to weird Protestant practices. So the fact that Protestants can point to some particular instance of somebody abusing Marian devotion, we can play that game all day long. I can point to, again, charismatic Protestants laughing in the spirit and dancing and handling snakes. All day long we can point to abuses. The question is, what does the church teach and what does the church authorize? And I think the key to understanding Marian devotion, I did, I've done multiple episodes about the Hail Mary prayer and the rosary. So go back and listen to those because the, the Hail Mary prayer is Christocentric. It, it mentions Mary as a means of focusing on Jesus. And really that's the way to understand that to Jesus through Mary as well. Because Mary, as the Ark of the New Covenant, as the agent of the Incarnation, the only reason that we have Christ is because she, is the second Eve, allowed the Incarnation to come through. And so she deserves honor for that, but she becomes a model of discipleship for us. So when we talk about to Jesus through Mary, one of the ways to think about that is that Mary is the most perfect disciple of Jesus. And see, for Protestants, you go, what do I mean? It's like Paul. Paul is the perfect disciple because he wrote all the letters in the New Testament and he was a missionary and whatever. You go, no, there was never a more perfect disciple than Mary, right? She, through her fiat, brought him into this world. Her blood ran through his veins. As Jesus was lashed by the Romans and as he bled out on that cross, her DNA was in that blood. She was profoundly connected to him and she followed him. She was his first follower. She was with him at the end when all the other apostles abandoned except John. Mary was there at the cross. She was with him from the beginning of his conception to the end and her devotion to him was always perfect. And so one of the ways to understand that is that the Jesus through Mary and the, and, 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 and the depth of Marian devotion is that we all want to be like Mary. If you want to know what a perfect disciple of Jesus looks like, don't look at Paul. Don't even look at Peter. Be like Mary. Okay, here's another question Chase asks. He says, you had an episode called "How Catholic Can I Be Without Being Catholic." Um, remember that episode? Ed the Protestant asked that question. Uh, we were sitting out here by the fire pit, and he said, "Like I've 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 come to accept so many aspects of Catholicism, but I'm not ready to sort of enter the church." And so I want to. He wanted to know, "Can I adopt seventy percent of Catholicism and still be a Protestant?" But Chase says, "Well, I want to think about that." in in the inverse. He says, how many Catholic views do I have to accept? What's the minimum that I have to accept to be Catholic? Can I reject any of them? So Ed was saying, if I accept 70% of Catholic doctrines, can I do that and still be a Protestant? Chase is saying, if I only accept 70% of Catholic doctrines, can I be considered a Catholic if I still hold back on some? It's a good question. And I thought a lot about it. It's, It's almost impossible to answer. So here's my best shot at it, Chase. When you go through confirmation, so suppose you go through this OCIA or RCIA class and you get to uh, your confirmation at the Easter Vigil, they will ask you, do you hold to the teachings or do you accept the teachings of the Catholic Church? And you say, well, which ones? And how many do I, I mean? Most of them. Look, if I hand you the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the book of the Catechism, I go, this is, according to St. John Paul II, authorized it, this is a sure compendium, a sure summary of the teaching of the Catholic Church, dogmatic and doctrinal teaching. So if you say, what does the Catholic Church teach? I hand you that. Now the question would be like, well, what if in that entire catechism, I'm like good with 98% of it, but there's 2% I'm not good with. Like there's a few paragraphs in there that I'm not so sure of. And at some point, right, you'd have to say, well, and, and St. John Newman talked about this, about the issue between doubt and rejection, right? So there may be things that the church teaches about which I go, yeah, okay, I'm not sure I totally get it, but if the church teaches it, I'm willing to accept it. Versus saying, I reject it. And those are two different things, right? I think also there is a hierarchy of significance. For example, if I said to you, well, which 2% do you reject? And you say, well, that part about there being a trinity, three persons and one God, I don't accept that part. I go, well, see, that's a real important part, right? (laughs) That's a real important part. If you reject that, you have real problems. Versus some paragraph about, the social teaching of the church and the social distribution of goods or the church's relationship to secular authority. I mean, there's all kinds of things in the catechism. The church's teaching on capital punishment is an excellent example because this, is, this has been controversial, and there have been Catholics on both sides of it. And in fact, Pope Francis has sort of recently made an amendment to the catechism about capital punishment, and a lot of people don't like it. And so there's a lot of Catholics of good conscience and educated Catholics on both sides who say, I didn't like the catechism on capital punishment before Francis changed it. Now others who say, I don't like it now that he did. But you can see that that's a different order of question. I might have doubt or concern about the church's position on capital punishment, which is real different than saying, "I, I don't accept the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So I guess what I'd, I'd say on that is you need to go to your RCA teacher or to your, your your pastor, your priest or whatever, and you need to say, these are the things that I'm concerned about. And then the question becomes, as St. John Newman said, are those doubts or hesitations or are they rejections? And I think you'd have to be specific about those. So I wish I could give you a general answer and say, if you, <clears throat> you can get away with it rejecting 7% of the of the Catechism and still be a good Catholic, I I, I can't really say that. You'd have to be specific about what those parts are and and what the nature of your concerns were. Because certainly there are Catholics that are more or less enthusiastic or have more or less understanding or more or less doubt about various doctrines. But the, the big dogmatic things are pretty important. So I encourage you on that one to get super specific. You can write me, Uh, Considering Catholicism at uh, gmail.com again, or I encourage you to talk to your priest or your your OCIA or RCIA instructor. Here's another one Chase asks, what is the need for purgatory? It's not necessarily a a place, it can just be a process, and that's true. Dante imagines it as a place, it's more of a process of purgation. But why can't God in his infinite power immediately cleanse and sanctify you of your sins at the moment of your death? If you can't sin in heaven any longer, then the split-second moment of your death is ample time for cleansing of your sins, even if you haven't fully repented of them. But why can't you just wipe the slate clean and beam up into heaven? It's a, it's a good question. And I think it taps into some confusion. So a lot of times we talk about time in purgatory. This is so many thousands of years in purgatory, or so many so this time. There is no time in purgatory because time is, time is a dimension or an experience that we have within the physical world, okay? So, heaven and hell and purgatory, in some sense, are outside linear time as we understand it. And that's a whole other thing. So, you're right. I mean, the, the question is, though, why can't God just speed you through it? And for all we know, if you were to think of it in that way, the purgation of purgatory... The cleansing of purgatory might only take a millisecond or a million years. Uh, That's an irrelevant measure. What it does require is for you to work those things out, however long that takes within the concept of linear time. And Chase's question says, well, why can't God just wipe your slate clean? Because, again, that sort of undoes the free will, the whole point of purgation. The point of purgation is not that God wipe your slate clean or, I mean, I'm probably showing my age here, like you're like an etch-a-sketch and he's just going to shake the etch-a-sketch and wipe it out. Because once again, then that God makes God the agent of your choice, right? Then your free will is gone. You committed that venial those venial sins. You need to work that out. And so the point of purgatory is a place for you to do penance for your soul to work out its devotion to the Lord. All those habitual venial sins that you committed in life, all those things that are a part of you. And I've talked about this another, I think we did a whole episode on purgatory, that, that all of that stuff has become part of me. And I need to cleanse myself. That's what happens in purgation. It's not that God cleanses me. It's a space where I do penance. The penance I didn't do. The work I didn't do in this life to make myself ready for the next. God gives me that opportunity. Whether that takes a millisecond or a million zillion years in linear time is not the point. The point is who's doing the cleansing and The way Chase frames is, why doesn't God do it? Well, whether it's a millisecond or a million years, God's can't cleanse me. God can't do my penance for me. I have to do my own penance. So it's not an issue of time. It's an issue of agency and causation and, right, who's doing it. Purgation is a space for me to do the penance that I didn't do in this life. So, wow. Chase has some other very helpful comments in here and some thoughts and reflections. Chase, fantastic email. I'm sorry it took me so long to get to it. I've been traveling and there's been a lot going on and I just neglected to get back to you. And I didn't want to just write all of this down because I knew it took me an hour to explain it. So I wanted to record it. I was just waiting for a good day to be able to do it. So anyway, I've sent you an email about that. But... In any case, I love doing these listener questions, and I want to do more of these. And I hope that some of them were your questions as well. And I didn't realize it was going to take me an hour to get through it, but that's partly my own fault for, for going on and on and on and on. But it's been a beautiful late afternoon. The sun's setting out here by the fire pit, and i got to get home in time to get dinner and walk the dog, but to do what i got to do this evening. But I'm glad that we had an opportunity to, to go through these, and I hope they've been helpful to you, all of you, not just Chase. And if you have questions you'd like me to answer, then by all means, write me consideringcatholicism at gmail.com. The old email, greg at consideringcatholicism.com, doesn't really work reliably. So just consideringcatholicism at gmail.com. Shoot me questions. I'll sit out here from time to time and record answers. And I look forward to, to interacting with you. So God bless. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith, and if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts, and please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com.